0: The title of this message that I've chosen is The Bond of Peace. It comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, which we'll read in just a moment. And in this section, Paul is describing the traits that characterize this bond of peace that should exist between believers. And he's speaking into a very specific situation in the church at Ephesus we are a disparate group we are an odd bunch of people look around you look at the personalities look at the education look at the differences in background in culture in um interests hobbies there's there's not much in this world that would gather and i'm just not talking just about this church. But the Church of Jesus Christ worldwide is an odd gathering. And we're looked at from outside the church, and they look at us and go, how can these people be together? What binds them together? And we're going to look at that this morning, the things that bind us, that make us the Church of Jesus Christ. Um, So let's just read the scripture that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, which say this. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. As I said, this verse, this passage of Scripture is Paul calling on the Ephesians church to bind together and holding up before them the things that do bind them together. The first thing, well, we're going to focus on verses 4 to 6 especially because those are the items that draws together. And the first thing to be noticed, I would suggest, about these three verses, verses 4 to 6, is that they're a very Trinitarian passage. They're one of those precious passages in the Scripture that affirms for us the doctrine of the triune nature of God, where it mentions the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, and the Lord, meaning our Lord Jesus Christ, and the God and Father— who is over all. All three persons are mentioned. It's similar to, for example, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, which says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Verses and passages like this affirm the Trinity for us. We don't go there to get our doctrine of the Trinity to discern the doctrine of the triune nature of God from Scripture, we have to look at those passages sprinkled throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament that affirm the personality of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. They all have intellect. They all have emotion. They all have will. They are all identifiable persons in their own right. We look further and we see that each one is, or divinity is attributed to each one. Each one is called God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all identified as God. So now we have three persons identified as God. And then we look further in Scripture and we find verses like um, Deuteronomy 6 4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. We find in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. So now we have three persons identified as God, and yet there's only one God. So out of that we systematize the truth of the New Testament and we come to an understanding of God as three persons and one being. And only then do we see passages of Scripture like this that affirm and illustrate and confirm for us that doctrine? We don't go here to get that doctrine, but we find it affirmed for us in passages like this. I could also read the Great Commission, in which people are to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I could read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which speak of believers who who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. So this passage not only names the three persons of the Trinity, but divides up or acknowledges the different responsibilities that they have. I could read others, and we will read others later, but for now... At least recognize in this passage of Scripture the affirmation of the triune nature of God. When we look at this section of Scripture and try to discern its structure, how it's put together, we note that it's bookended by a call to unity. And I love those passages of Scripture, and there are many that are surrounded or they're enclosed by a single idea. And it tells us clearly what the author intends to get across by this passage of Scripture. We just read in uh, verse 3 that we are being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That unity is something we're called to, something enabled by the Spirit. And then when we cast our eyes down to verse 13, we read there, Till we all come to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's not only what we're called to, it's not only what motivates us, but it's the goal. It's the purpose of all these things about which Paul is writing in this chapter. Book ended by unity, so we can't can't lose track of the fact that as we read this, as we go through this, The purpose, the goal, the motivator is the unity of the body of Christ, of this strange and wonderful body to which we belong. The reason Paul brings this up here, it's not done in a vacuum. It's because Paul has introduced earlier in this epistle the idea of the Jew and Gentile together in one body. He says, he begins it, this idea in Ephesians chapter two verse eleven to fourteen which say this. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was our destiny as unsaved Gentiles. And now comes one of the glorious but now in Scripture. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, by the blood of Christ. That's how we're brought together. That's what knits us together in one body. For he himself is our peace who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. We Gentiles had no hope apart from a kind of quasi-conversion to Judaism. Gentiles can't become fully Jewish. We aren't descended from Abraham, but we can join them. They could join with Jews in the worship of the one true God. Gentiles had no part in the blessings that were Israel's, therefore they had no hope. But now brought near and that by the blood of Christ, uh, we share in this common salvation, Jew and Gentile together. That's what was happening. We're in a, this letter is written at a time when the church is shifting from a 100% Jewish church on the day of Pentecost at its founding to one that is gradually becoming more Gentile until today when it's almost entirely Gentile. There may be Jews here, I know of none. But back then they were in the process of converting and that's, that's the ground out of which springs this message from Paul. Paul. This desire that you go beyond that, you you not lean on the things that separate you, this Jewishness and Gentileness, but rather embrace those things which they have in common. And although we don't struggle today to join together as Jew and Gentile, although hopefully we do, if a messianic Jew joined us, hopefully we do, our, our struggle is to bind ourselves together despite a penelope of differences between us. We are a strange and wonderful body, as I said. Ephesians 3, starting at verse 4, Paul goes on, By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, and here's the mystery, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. We talked in the adult Sunday school this morning about what a mystery is. And a mystery in Scripture is something about which the Old Testament is silent. The Old Testament knows nothing about the Jew and Gentile together in one body. It's just not seen, and that's why it's called a mystery here. It's something brand new, and now it's revealed to the Lord's saints, although it wasn't revealed to past generations. The Jews had an assignment to bless the world, to represent the truth of God to those around them, but there's no indication that Jew and Gentile would be bound together in one body. That's why Paul calls it a mystery. And here it's happening. After the founding of the church, these two disparate bodies, who did their best to avoid one another, were now called together into this one unique God-ordained organization called the Church of Jesus Christ. And Paul out of that springs this call to unity. This whole process of drawing together Jew and Gentile was the whole reason for the edict from the Jerusalem Council. Do you remember in Acts chapter 15 when the Jerusalem Council came out with the instructions that Gentiles didn't have to obey the whole law, but in order to maintain peace in the body, they were to avoid things strangled, avoid blood, avoid food sacrificed to idols, and avoid fornication. And at least three of these things were set aside. How do I know that? Because a few years later in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is asked, Paul, can we eat food sacrificed to idols? And Paul says, in effect, go ahead. There's no such thing as an idol. And so The Jerusalem Council was a part of a process of integrating Jew and Gentile together. That's what we see here. That's what Paul's ongoing desire is unity in the body. In our culture, in the present day church, we are not tempted to divide ourselves into saved Gentiles and messianic Jews. However, the differences I talked about before in culture, in personality, in interests, in education, in profession, and even in what I call tertiary doctrines, third level doctrines, things about which Scripture is silent. These things can divide us. And it's okay to have friends in the church with common interests. You can like some people, but you love everybody because we are bound together. The immediate context of these verses, verses 4 to 6, we just read, that Paul implores in my translation. He urges in the ESV. He beseeches in the King James. This is not a flippant suggestion on Paul's part. I beseech you that you walk or I implore you that you walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And that's the framework of this call to unity, that we walk, that believers walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And how exalted is our calling, a calling by God to salvation. Is that worthy? It certainly is, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of that calling. You've been called to something far greater than anything that comprises you on Earth. And you, we believers, must walk in accordance with that calling. That's Paul's beseeching. That's his pleading to the Ephesian people that they walk in a manner worthy of the calling. That that walk, verse 2, is in all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance. Clearly, we are called to a walk that does not exalt self, that denigrates self and exalts others to a higher status than we enjoy. Philippians 2 3 says, or calls on believers to consider each one better than yourself. And I do recall saying in that prayer meeting that it's, I can look around a congregation like this, and it's hard to find somebody that I haven't learned something from. It's not hard to think think of others as better than ourselves, as greater than ourselves, as having something to offer to us. There's No believer, and we're all gifted, there's no believer who doesn't have something to offer to the body. And as we think less of ourselves, as we walk in humility and we think more of others, it allows us to bind ourselves together ever more tightly. It allows us to walk in this walk to which we've been called. And finally, as we looked, he focuses on the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Our walk is not only to be characterized by humility and tolerance and patience, but it is to be characterized um, by this desire for unity, for coming together of the body to, for an, to an acknowledgment of our unity, that we are one body. And we are bound together by what scripture calls the bond of peace. Now, this is where we enter into this list of seven things that we keep in mind that bind us together. And I don't care who you are or what your background is, we share these seven things. They are non-negotiable. And so Paul begins. Let's look at them one at a time now, at these things that bind us together. We are, in verse 4, One body. There is one body, it says here. And it's talking there about the description, the metaphor that's often used in Scripture of we as the body of Christ and Christ as the head. As in all scriptural metaphors to describe the body of the church, Christ is the greater. And we are the lesser. We find there that we are sheep, but he's the shepherd. We find ourselves to be the purchased possession, but Christ is the redeemer. We find ourselves to be called living stones, but Christ is the chief cornerstone. And here we are reminded that we are the body of Christ, but he is the head. He is what controls and drives and moves this body that is connected to him so intimately. We are bound together into one body by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to look at that in just a second when we get into the spirit as another of the thing that binds us, another of the things that binds us together, of the baptism of the Spirit is that function of the Holy Spirit in this dispensation by which we are bound together. And it is unique to this dispensation, which Paul calls the dispensation of grace, the tie work or the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. The one body of the church consists of all believers from the church's founding at the day of Pentecost until its Rapture until its removal from the earth. It's not just this body. It's not even just all believers on earth at this time. All believers are bound together by their common baptism and by the fact that we are in one body. There's no division here. That's why I question those who uh, take the position of a partial rapture that we will be raptured home in pieces. Our Lord will not rapture an amputated body. We are one, one united body. The, the expansion or an expansion of this idea of the church as the body of Christ is expanded for us in First Corinthians 12 which says, beginning at verse 14, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though there are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit were we all baptized into one body, and there it is, whether Jew or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. No matter what gift you've been given, and we all have a spiritual gift, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, no matter If that gift happens to bring you to a public position where people see it, or it's a very uh, quiet background kind of thing, we're all part of the body. We're all enacting the will of God, his purposes for this body of believers. And no matter how we use our gift or how God uses it in this church, it is just as worthy of reward, whether it's seen or not. Know this. We are one body. The second thing, there is one spirit. And as I said, there are, well, there are three functions of the Holy Spirit in this church dispensation that aren't, weren't in the Old Testament and won't be after the church is gone. We are baptized by that one Holy Spirit. All of us. Who know Jesus Christ are baptized into one body. We just read that in 1 Corinthians twelve, thirteen. We are also indwelt by the Spirit of God. John 14, starting at verse 16, I will ask this is Jesus speaking to his apostles. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of Truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him. You know this Holy Spirit. Why? Because he dwells with you and will be in you. And that acknowledges a dispensational change from before the founding of the church till after. The Holy Spirit not only baptizes, but he indwells each one of us. We have a profound privilege in this age. There's no believer um, who is left without the Holy Spirit. It's a fact of our salvation. And finally, Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 13, talks about the sealing of the Spirit. Not only indwelt, not only baptized, but we are sealed by this one Spirit that we all enjoy, and we're each sealed Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him, that is in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. All the promises and blessings that are given to us in Scripture are assured in each one of us by the fact, excuse me, that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. It is the Holy Spirit functions, if you will, as our engagement ring. We, as the bride of Christ, are betrothed to him. And we have an engagement ring. We have the sealing of the pledge of the Holy Spirit. It's a precious promise and it's, again, one of those things that we hold in common. It is the mark of the true believer. Romans 8, 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. These uniquenesses that we're looking at, these one-of-a-kind things, um, the body and the Spirit are marks of the true believer. And if you are a believer, you have them. There is no doubt. These are part of your walk. Number three, there is one hope of your calling. This references the introductory verse, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, which says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling the same calling with which you have been called. First of all, the hope that we know as believers is not the hope that unbelievers have, that they hope something will happen. I hope my plane comes in on time. It may or may not. I hope I get what I want for supper. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. That's okay. But the hope we have in the truths of God is absolutely unassailable. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, says not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So note there that this hope we have does not disappoint. We're not hoping for something that may or may not happen. The assurance, the hope we have, is in the absolute assurance guaranteed by the sealing of the Spirit that these things will come to pass in our lives. When it speaks of calling here, it's not talking about the audible calling that you may have heard from the pulpit. It's talking about the inaudible calling on your heart that brings conviction and draws us to Christ. That's the calling that we know. You can hear the call from the pulpit, many people do, and walk away and are not redeemed or saved by that. But the calling of the Holy Spirit is on your heart and it's irresistible. And we as believers have been bound together by that calling. There's a story that Martin Luther told about walking home one night and running into one of his parishioners who was also coming home late and drunk after having a good time. And when Martin Luther reprimanded him, this parishioner said, oh, you don't have to worry about me. You saved me meaning he heard the call from the pulpit from Martin Luther. And Martin Luther's response, alas, I fear I did. His fear was that this man had received just the call from the pulpit, but hadn't heard the life-changing call of the Holy Spirit. And it is the hope of that calling that draws us together again as one body. Note before we move on that these first three are all bound up in the work of the Spirit. He baptizes into us into one body. It's the Spirit who seals and indwells and baptizes us. And it is Him, it is the calling of the Spirit that drew us together to salvation. These three describe what is primarily the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The next one goes on. There is one Lord. I find it worthy of note that the inclusion of one Lord happens at position number four in a list of seven. In other words, the naming of the Lord as one of those things which binds us together is at the central position in this list. And indeed... The Lord is central to our salvation. He is the central thing that binds us together. The Church of Jesus Christ is bound together by many things, but central to that is our irreplaceable, unique Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the only God-man, the only worthy sacrifice, the only prophet, priest, and king. He's Messiah to Israel. He's Savior to the Gentiles. He's the only sinless, omniscient, omnipotent, glorious one to walk on earth. We have seen him in our studies in Luke, in the adult Sunday school class, demonstrating his godhood by taking to himself the prerogatives and the power and the position that is God's alone. For example, in forgiving sins. This is the one Lord who died for each one of us. This is the Christ whose blood binds us together. After that, Paul speaks of one faith. Now, when the New Testament speaks of faith, it could be speaking of the broad faith, the broad truth of God that includes the whole Bible and especially the New Testament. It could be speaking of that. That certainly binds us together. The New Testament also uses the word faith to speak of the specific faith, the gospel message, the faith we have, the trust we have in Jesus Christ that binds us together. And I would suggest both are applicable here. The broad, unassailable, um, inherent truth of Scripture binds us together. It's what we trust for our growth and advancement. And the gospel, the precious gospel of salvation by grace through faith binds us together as well. We are locked together by that faith. Um, Either way, it is Jesus Christ, that same Lord who is the focus of the whole of scripture and is the core of the gospel we preach as well. By his death and resurrection, we are bound together. Third, or the next third one in this section, the sixth uniqueness that Paul brings up here is that we know one baptism, and this is the baptism of identification with Christ that we are called to. It was so much part and parcel of what it meant to be a Christian in the first century that Paul includes it in this list here. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? We've acted out the death and burial and resurrection. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism unto death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. This baptism is another thing that binds us together. And whether it's something that each one of us here have experienced as believers, it is, call, it is something to which we're called and something that marks us out as unique. John the Baptist was baptizing people before the uh, cross. But believers who had experienced only that, quote, baptism of repentance by John the Baptist were told to be rebaptized in Acts 19 by Paul in accordance with the baptism of identification with Christ. So just as we saw in the first three uniquenesses in this passage, the Spirit and his work uh, in calling us and his work in making us one body, so in the second three inclusions in this list, we find the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. He is our one Lord. He is the one in whom we have, have faith, and he is the one with whom we identify in our baptism. So, three things attached to the Spirit that bind us together, and now three things attached to our Lord Jesus Christ that bind us together and the list, this list of seven uniquenesses ends with the last one, one God and Father. So now we have the third member of the triune Godhead, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Do you catch that? It's God the Father who oversees all these things to his glory. It's God who gets the glory. One of the Trinitarian passages in Scripture that we alluded to but didn't read, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 6. Again, there we see the triune Godhead because it says there, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. That passage in 1 Corinthians is so much structured like this one. It again names the three persons of the Godhead. It talks about the different functions. It lists them in the same order. And it ends by recognizing that it's God the Father who gets the glory for all these things as the triune Godhead works together, in this case, by the Spirit gifting and the Lord taking those gifted believers and assigning them ministries in his church, it's God who receives the glory for all these things. We see that structure here in Ephesians chapter 4 that we're looking at. We see it paralleled in 1 Corinthians 12. We see the the division of responsibility among the Godheads, but it's God the Father receives the glory for all these things. There are many uniquenesses that we turn to when we recognize that ours is a unique and one-of-a-kind faith. It's don't let anybody ever tell you that what we believe is just another religion like the others in the world. There are so many things that make Christianity unique, among the world's faiths. The uniqueness of the Bible is one. The fact that we are saved by faith and there's no works to be established to establish our salvation. The fact that redemption is complete and has been done in the past and we have nothing to add to it. The fact that we enjoy a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, not a set of religious dogmas and Instructions on what to do. There are so very many things that make Christianity, Christianity unique, but Paul has chosen seven specific things here that are unique and that bind us together in the body of Christ. This idea, these seven things that Paul has given us are part of what he calls in Colossians, the things above. Colossians chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 1, this verse has been referred to over the past period of time in several contexts that I can recall. It says there, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. These are the things above. These are the things on which to focus our minds. These are the things that will, that will draw us together rather than pushing us apart and separating us. These are the things, this one body, this one spirit, this one hope of your calling, this one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father over all. Um, these are the things that will bind us together. We must... I divide, in my own mind, and you can reject this, this is just me talking, but I divide the doctrines we receive that we come to believe into three tiers. The primary doctrines are those that separate us from unbelievers the substitutionary atoning death of Christ, the virgin birth, his bodily resurrection and return. All these things are primary doctrines and they mark out the believer as separate from the unbeliever. The second tier doctrines are things which divide, in my mind, which separate us into denominations. I can break bread with others in evangelical churches, although we don't agree on all doctrines. We agree on everyone that brings about salvation and calls us to salvation, but we can disagree on other things. These are secondary doctrines. Think about things like the when and how Christ will return, things like eternal security. I disagree with other believers, but I will still break bread with them and still love them as brothers and sisters in Christ. The third level doctrines, the tertiary doctrines, are the things about which Scripture is silent. It's not just a question of interpreting them. Things like, what movie should I watch? Should I watch movies? Can I go to a baseball game on a Sunday afternoon? And trust me, these things divide believers. But if... Scripture is silent about these issues. Extend grace to one another. And rather, let yourself focus on these things, on the one body, the one spirit, the one calling, the one Lord, faith, baptism, and one God who is over all. This is what binds us together. And despite the fact, as I said at the start, that we are a strange and disparate and unusual group, a group that's impossible by worldly standards, we not only come together to worship this one God, but we love one another. It's profound that God has orchestrated this. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the reminder from your word of our, all the blessings, all the rich uniquenesses that are ours, Father, found in your word. And will you allow, Father, that we use these things to bind ourselves together ever more tightly as believers? We are the church. We are the body. We are the bride of Jesus Christ, Father. And we take great joy in that. Father, let us be ever mindful of the fact that we are one body and of those things especially that bind us together. And we ask all this in Christ's name, amen.